Okay, welcome to episode 73 of the United Pubcast, the latest edition done in self-isolation, of course. Um, Larry, you've had a busy day at work? Yeah, mate, doing well. I'm going a little bit mad, but, you know, just cracking on until I have to go into the mental house. Uh, all good to hear, as long as you're safe and sound. Now, we seem to have a special guest every single week now, it seems. Um, we've obviously had Mark Bosnich on in the past, we've had Daniel Garb, and the last podcast was obviously Alan Keegan, the stadium announcer at Old Trafford. And the names do not stop, a very well-known name in Australian football. Now, we'll get into his choice of football team in a little bit, but um, someone who doesn't really need an introduction, um, Mr. Simon Hill. How are you, mate? I'm very good, guys. Very strange to be on a Man United podcast, but uh, thanks for the invite. Could be interesting. Yeah, well, I think you know, we, we tested the waters a little bit with Daniel Garber as well, thinking United-Liverpool, not quite sure how it's going to go. But we think in this sort of very sort of testing, very unique um, time, we might as well extend the olive branch and try and be nice to each other where we can because <laughs> there's obviously um, far more important things going on in the world at the moment. And I think, yeah. uh, actually, before we start, we'll just um, obviously having a Manchester City guest and being a football podcast in regards to everything that's happening at the moment, I think it's good to send our best wishes and our thoughts to um, Pep Guardiola and his family after losing his mum, unfortunately, due to the coronavirus. So um, when you follow all this on the news, like you see how big it is and it's eventually going to affect sort of everyone. That's how many people are catching it. But when you see it affect one of the biggest names in world football, it um, really goes to show you that the game sort of does need to take a backward step. So um, I'm sure everyone agrees. Our best thoughts and wishes go to Pep and his family. So Simon, yeah. we'll start on the football side of things. Um, obviously a Manchester City fan. Just your thoughts and memories on or sort of why it was City growing up supporting Man City and just a little bit of a background well, obviously, I was born in Manchester, um, so it was one of the two. And I was born into a city family. Uh, my dad was and still is at 85 uh, a city supporter. Uh, he still goes to a, a lot of home games. Um, he doesn't have a season ticket anymore. He gave that up actually only last year uh, because being 85, he's you know clearly got uh, one or two mobility problems these days. Yeah. Uh, so he struggles to walk to and from the stadium. It's not actually being in the stadium. It's actually getting to it. Uh, but he still goes to, to some games uh, and was a regular for many, many years. Um, so obviously that's where I got it from. My granddad, who has long since passed away, was a lifelong City fan. Although you'll be interested to hear that I think in common with, with many people of his generation, uh, post-Second World War, he did actually go and watch United as well. A lot yeah. of... A lot of uh, people of that generation, they, they didn't have the same tribalism, I don't think, as as we did. So he, he'd go and sometimes watch United. He was always a City fan, uh, but he'd go with some of his mates to watch United. Um, and going even further back, my great-grandfather, a guy called Fred Taylor, uh, actually played for Ardwick FC, which, uh, if you know your history, that's one of the forerunners of Manchester City. He played for them in 1892, although I can't find... A much record of him, but uh, I remember when I was a kid growing up, my nana uh, had a, a big photo of him in his baggy shorts and with his handlebar moustache uh, and in the Ardwick jersey. So, you know, mine is a, a lineage, really, that goes back well over 100 years. So I, I never really had any choice 
My, my dad took me to my first game at Main Road when I was six years old. And that was it. I was en enrolled as a junior blue uh, membership number 596. I still remember it. I used to go to branch meetings. And by the time I was a teenager, I, I was already a season ticket holder of many years in the Platte Lane end at Main Road. And uh, then I graduated to the Kipax when I was a teenager and used to go on, on the football special trains to all the home and away games. Um, the, the, the supporters coaches with uh, Helen Turner, who's probably a, a bit before your time, but she was the big lady who used to ring the bell behind uh, Joe Corrigan's goal in the North Stand. So it, it's, you know, it's my lifelong passion. Uh, and obviously, which, which led to a career in football, for which I'm very grateful. Without Manchester City, uh, you know, I wouldn't be speaking to you now. So mm. it's uh, it's always been my club. And obviously, it's you know, these days, it's a lot different to the club I, I grew up supporting. Uh, and there are pros and cons to that. But uh, they'll be my club till till I pop my clock, City till I die. Oh, fascinating. As you say, like United fans, obviously, a little bit of banter will always throw out this history thing. But that fires very much in the face of that in terms of how far you can go back and sort of the stories you exactly. sort of remember. Exactly, exactly. But um, you just mentioned one thing there in regards to how a lot of fans post-World War II sort of obviously went both weeks. If United were away, they'd go to City, and if City were away, mm. etc. And a lot of United fans for that generation say the exact same thing. So yeah. there was a rivalry, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't what it turned into. It was a very much a, okay, they were there to watch the football and support sort of. They obviously had their team yeah. they supported, but a very much yeah. a respectful you know, the, 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 the interesting thing is I, I remember my granddad telling me when I was very young that even though he was always a City fan, he wanted United to do well. And it changed, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s, when the, the hooliganism started to, uh, you know, be a part of the landscape in, in, in England and particularly, you know, in Manchester now. That was slightly before my time, although I certainly do remember it in the late 70s and particularly in the 80s. Um, and he said that, and I'm not casting aspersions that you read here, but, but my granddad's point of view, probably with a with a blue bit of bias in it, was that the problems were worse at Old Trafford. And that's when he stopped going mm. to Old Trafford. He didn't he didn't feel as though it was a, it was a you know, family atmosphere. Now, I'm sure you could say the same about, you know, parts of the city crowd and lots of other clubs around the country as well. But that, that's I think that's where the tribalism maybe started to come in more. And, you, you know, you had your club and that was it. You didn't uh, you didn't tend to go and watch the, the other mob. So, uh, yeah, interesting sort of point in history that. And uh, I always remember him telling me that when I was a kid. Well, we're just going to touch on sort of Manchester Derby memories, um, sort of your favourite ones, and obviously we'll touch on our favourite ones, etc. But do you have sort of, obviously growing up in Manchester, that first sort of interaction with United and first sort of Derby memory? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, to be honest, I remember in in the mid-70s when I first started going watching City regularly. My, my first game was 73-74 against Ipswich, and then I started going regularly uh, 74, 75, uh, and never really stopped from that point on. Um, and, and the big rivals, really, the, the team I, I disliked more than anyone was, was Liverpool, funnily enough, because they won everything in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the United thing came a little bit later. I remember, obviously, the Derby days were, were special, but uh, it's, that's not to say that I liked United. Obviously, I didn't. Uh, but and particularly on Derby Day, you know, there was that intense rivalry. But I, I didn't feel the same 
animosity towards United, as I did with with Liverpool for a long time. I'm sure United fans will probably echo that as well. Mm. Um, But the first derby game I remember going to, I think it was 75, 76. um, And I I, I think City won 3-1. It might have been the season after. My memory's obviously a bit cloudy because I was very young at the time. But I remember Brian Kidd, who, of course, started his career with United, was then playing for City. And I remember he scored for City. Um, so the, the, there was the, those early memories are foggy of the Derby games. Uh, I, I seem to remember that when, when we played United at Main Road, we won more often than not. And it, the reverse was true at Old Trafford. We didn't seem to win very often at Old Trafford. Um, talking of favourite derbies... Uh, obviously, I was there at the, the 5-1 in 1989. Yeah. That was a, a brilliant day for us because nobody expected us to win. I still remember, uh, I forget who the pundit was, um, but he, he said, uh, whatever your mortgage is, you, you can stake your house on United winning today. And, and that stuck with me. Uh, and I think maybe the City lads, and we had a very young team in those days, uh, you know, maybe responded to that as well. So that was a great day. Um, there, there are others, many others uh, down the years. I was at Old Trafford in 1985, a game actually we didn't win. It was a two-all draw, but United were 2-0 up and we came back to draw two-all. And that basically ended United's hopes of winning the title that year, uh, the days of Ron Atkinson. And the equaliser was scored with a few minutes to go by Arthur Olberston, a known goal. And he won third place in City's Player of the Year award that year. Um, you know, that's how much it meant to us at that particular time. Uh, more recently, probably my favourite derby of all was the FA Cup semi-final in 2011 at Wembley uh, when I was actually caught on camera. Yeah, I still remember Strangely that. enough, yeah. you, might, you might remember that. Uh, I was in, you know, the City end and uh, it was a very tense day because that was... You know, we felt that was the tipping point. That was our moment that we were finally going to, you know, win against United and get through to a cup final and, and end this long trophy drought. And, you know, you'll remember the banner that hung at Old Trafford for all those years. You know, that that, that really uh, cut deep with us. We wanted to get rid of that banner. So that was a seminal moment. And I, I had a big night that night <laughs> with a lot of City mates. Uh, we celebrated that win long and hard thanks to Yaya Toure. Yeah, well, I think everyone sort of looks at sort of that the turn of City, sort of when they, the sort of the yeah. takeover, which we'll get into 2008, and sort of always on the cusp of challenge and they'll win a game here or there and they'll always be on the cusp. But that semi-final, okay, it wasn't the final, but it was at Stoke, I think you played in the final that season. Yes, but yes I think that's right. Getting past United there, sort of allowing you to make that first step and win that first trophy in that era, I think that was yeah. obviously your, as you say, your big moment. Um, you can look back at that 6-1, was it? I think that 6-1 was the following season. But, um, That's right. I think the but real I, turning I point was that semi. Yeah, I mean, I didn't attend the 6-1 because I was obviously I was back in Australia by then, but I, I was there at, uh, at the semi-final. I stayed for the cup final against Stoke, which, strangely enough, didn't have the same edge to it. It was almost like, you know, you knew you were going to win that day. Um, there was another one, obviously, in 2011-12. Uh, you probably won't thank me for reminding you of this. Three games before the end of the season where United had had, had that eight-point lead and I was at uh, the Etihad Stadium uh, for the game when Vincent Company scored the winner. Uh, and Then I stayed on for the final two games against Newcastle, which we won, and then obviously the infamous uh, you know game against Queen's Park Rangers 
where we basically won the league in uh, with about 30 seconds of stoppage time to go, thanks to Sergio Aguero. So, you know, they're, they're all sort of moments seeped into, uh, you know, obviously my brain as a City su- a supporter, um, United fans will have their own, you know, moments. Uh, uh, you know, Ryan Giggs scoring in the semi-final of the FA Cup many, many years ago and taking his shirt off and, you know, your Champions League final win in 99 with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, all that sort of stuff. Mm. You know, th- this is what makes us all football fans, but I think we can all, you know, relate to those uh, moments. Um, you know, Nick Hornby said in his Fever Pitch book, we, we don't measure our, our life in years, we measure it in football seasons, and it's true. Yeah. And you can remember where you were at certain points on the calendar because you think, yeah, City won that day, or we lost, or, <laughs> you know, there was a cup final or whatever. So that, that's what makes football the, the great game. And even though we're rivals as fans, uh, I think we can all empathise and appreciate those moments. No, 100%. And um, just there, well, we're obviously trying to be as polite as we can. And Larry, unfortunately, <laughs> Simon has just given us a lot of very bad memories in our in our minds. Um, just before we move on, um, we seem to talk about the Manchester Derby quite often. We've done a, a few podcasts on it. Um, just fire back with maybe your one or two memories that stick out for you. Oh, man, where do I start? I mean, for me, it has to be the Rooney goal. I think that's my... Favorite moment, um, simply because of my age. Um, you know, Simon, with all due respect, I have a lot of um, time for what you've done in the game, but I'm a lot younger, so my memories won't be going back to the 70s. <laughs> um, Rooney's goal, for sure, um, at Old Trafford. To Ultimately, I know it wasn't the game that won us the league, but um, just the way he scored, the fact he was linked with City um, a, a lot, really, um, in the lead-up to that season, um, handing in a transfer request. When you put it in the context... That was a great moment. Obviously, there was Michael Owen's late winner, um, 93rd minute. Um, granted, it was a scouser, but probably the only moment I'd, I'll cheer something that Michael Owen has done in a, in the red shirt. Um, I mean, we really haven't had too many lately. I mean, obviously, there's the most recent game, but in terms of the most magnificent moments, for me, it's the Rooney goal. I'd, I'd say that's the greatest I have. Yeah, no, 100%. We seem to touch on that Rooney goal um, every couple of weeks. Um, Larry, we're going to go into coronavirus next, I think. Yeah, we sure are. So, Simon, with to damper things a little bit, obviously taking into account what's going on in the world, we've had a lot of pundits and a lot of commentary around what's the perfect solution. We're, we've seen overnight, obviously, the Bundesliga looks like it's due to return next month. Um, where do you stand in terms of what's the perfect and the most sensible solution? Obviously, the most perfect outcome would be we just return us to normal. But looking at the way things stand, how do you think uh, the Premier League should look to finish the season? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the most logical solution is to try and get the remaining games played behind closed doors. I mean, given the current environment in the UK, I can't honestly see how they will allow supporters into the stadium until this thing is cleared up, which could be months away. Um, What club is going to take that risk, Um, particularly given the litigation that could follow from supporters if they were to contract this coronavirus from uh, being in very close contact with 50,000 other people? Mm. So I, I think that's the logical solution. When they can get that up and running I don't know. You know, clearly, I think there has to be a cutoff point because if you think that the next season is due to start in uh, mid-August, uh, you know, even if they delay that by a couple of weeks, there's not a big window 
uh, I think you've got to look to be getting the the league up and running by early June uh, at the latest, really, to try and uh, what are there eight nine games left, maybe ten, yeah, uh, in the Premier League. So you yeah. know, there's still a fair fair few games to get in. Now, even even if you play, you know, Saturday, Tuesday, or Saturday, Wednesday, and two games a week, you're still looking at five or six weeks. The, the players, you know, clearly, although they're, they're fit at the moment, they can't be match fit because they're not in, you know, full game mode. Uh, their training is probably limited. So, you know, they're, they're probably going to need a couple of weeks to get back up to speed to actually play the games. And then on the other end of it, once it's finished, if we get it finished, they've got to have a decent enough uh, you know, off-season and then return for pre-season training ahead of the next season. So I think we've got a very small window of opportunity. And, you know, clearly the Premier League know that. And yeah. they, they're they looking at trying to get things restarted ASAP. But given the current restrictions, we've got the same problem here in Australia. And in fact, we're in a better situation here in Australia with the A-League because we have a much longer off-season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got more time to be able to finish it if we can. Um, but in England and most parts of Europe, they don't have that luxury. So, the, the, you know, the, the worst case scenario is you have to call the season off. Now, goodness knows what happens then. I know everybody's talking about, well, just give Liverpool the title. To be honest, that's the easy bit. You know, they deserve whatever our fan biases are. They deserve the title. Although it will be funny to see that little asterisk next to their name <laughs> in the history book, <laughs> uh, but but the, the trickier bit is okay. So who qualifies for Europe, and more importantly, who gets promoted and who gets relegated? Because in that scenario, there are millions and millions of pounds at stake, and you can be absolutely sure that those clubs who you know are on the cusp and who miss out if the season is to be you know, uh, stopped at this current moment, they will take legal action because they're going to miss out on millions. So it's a a very difficult situation for the authorities. I don't envy them uh, trying to get this resolved. The the best case scenario is things ease with regards to the coronavirus. We get them back up playing by early June, but I think it has to be behind closed doors just to get this season finished. Mm. I mean, just touching on what you've said, I definitely agree with you. I think the the teams in that relegation battle promotion um, is the biggest issue. Um, I mean, look at Leeds. They collapsed terribly last season. They were so close, and it looks like they're in a good position. So I think it would be wrong to almost say to these guys, you know, the season's null and void. But I've seen the suggestion around five teams um, potentially coming up. So teams one and two in the championship, and then, you know, then there's five relegation spots for the next season. Do you think that would work? I'm not sure about that one. I I think a better solution would be, you know, a a series, if we could get football up and running, but we haven't got enough time to finish off the regular season, is maybe you put the clubs, uh, say the bottom three in the Premier League and the next four or five uh, uh, along with them into like a mini league and say, look, you're going to play against each other once. It's a mini league of five, uh, five matches or six matches and the bottom three in that mini league will get relegated. Same in terms of promotion in the championship. Top uh, top seven or eight, uh, again, you, you're going to have to stretch that out. You know, maybe the top two go up and, and the next six play off for the remaining uh, spots. I don't know. But maybe there needs to be a creative solution for this one particular season. And then at least 
you know, the clubs that are on the fringe of the promotion race uh, get a fair crack at going up. And the, the clubs who are in the bottom three in the Premier League at the moment have a fair crack of, of getting out of trouble. At least it's in their own hands then. Um, may, maybe that's a fair way. But again, you know, just to reiterate, I don't envy them having to resolve this because there's going to be winners and losers and uh, the losers ain't going to be happy. I think that's yeah. the thing. There's just simply no answer that is going to... Well, no decision's ever going to favour or be in favour of everyone, but this one especially, mm. as you say, not just the Premier League. The Premier League is maybe the easy part, especially the top half of the table, where those clubs mm. are very sort of financially stable. As those clubs, are, a Premier League club getting relegated or a, a club who have spent a lot of money in the championship on the sort of hope that they are going to go up and continue, I just think it is a circus that, as you say... A, I'm very thankful that I'm not in the position to be making that decision because you're going to upset a lot of people and a lot of clubs and it's going to cost a lot of clubs and a lot of people a lot of money. Now, speaking of the top half of the table, um, United these days do find ourselves just in the top half of the table. Um, I don't know where we are when the league finished, sixth or seventh, I think. But um, just in regards to the way the season's going to finish, I'm not sure what the latest information is regarding City's potential ban um, being overturned. I know they're going to take it to Cass, etc. But um, just on not knowing where the season's going to finish, if it's going to end now or it's going to be null and void or we're going to potentially finish it, that fifth spot, we're not quite sure if fifth spot is going to qualify for the Champions League or if City are going to potentially keep their fourth spot. Just when you're... As a City fan, you might have your ear to the ground a little bit closer than us. What your latest hearings are regarding the whole situation? Well, probably only the same as everybody else, really, in that, uh, you know, City are obviously taking this issue to CAS, uh, Court of Arbitration for Sports, and, and they will ultimately rule. But, you know, given the current environment and the COVID crisis, I would imagine all that stuff's been put in hiatus for the yeah. time being. Um in which case, you know, if the, if the season was to be declared null and void, I can only imagine that City, given that we're second at the moment, you know, would qualify for next year and a ruling would be taken later on in the calendar year for maybe the season after and the season after that. Um, make no mistake, City will fight this uh, just on the issue itself. They will fight it with everything they've got. And obviously, as we know, financially, that's that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the actual issue, I, I think that there appears to me, even as a City fan, no doubt that they've breached the rules. In which mm. case, you know, you, you have to be punished. Uh, whatever your, fra- your fan proclivities are, you, you have to abide by the rules. Now, the second part is, are the rules correct? Now, this is where I have an issue. Um I think the rules have been put in place to protect the cartel at the top of European football. If you look at the whole essence of financial fair play, it was originally devised to stop clubs or stories like Portsmouth um, and Bradford City, who dropped out of the Premier League, uh, Leeds United even to a certain extent, um, and, and lost millions and very nearly went out of business because... You know, they were financially mismanaged to a a, a ridiculous extent. Now, somehow this financial fair play has been uh, manoeuvred and emerged as something completely different to try and put a cap on ambitious club spending. Now, if if that's the essence of European football, then what you're going to have over the next 20, 30, 50, 100 years 
is the same old clubs winning the big trophies and creaming off all the money. Because we all know that Real Madrid, Man United, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, uh, all, all the rest of them, uh, you know, if they qualify in perpetuity for the Champions League, every year they play in the Champions League, uh, they get richer and richer and richer and richer. And if you put in place regulations to say you can only spend a proportion of your income, then who's going to benefit from that? Real Madrid, Man United, Bayern Munich, Barcelona. So <clears throat> Michel Platini admitted this, said it uh, in black and white in an interview to Martin Samuel of the Daily Mail as, as far back as, I think, 2013, 14, maybe 2015. And he said this was basically uh, the sop that they had to give to the old G14 clubs um, to retain control over the championship because the threat from the G14 was if you don't give us what, what we want, we'll go off and form a European Super League. And obviously UEFA you know, couldn't have that. So I, I think this whole financial fair play system is a red herring. I think it's been sold brilliantly to the public as a way of curbing spending. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that you put in fair play in the title uh, then suggests that anybody who breaches those rules is actually, you know, the, the naughty boys. And uh, again, I, I reiterate, I'm in no way defending City in all of this. They're as guilty as anybody because they too want to pull up the drawbridge and not allow uh, ambitious clubs, you know, the mid-range clubs to, mm. to try and take away their money. So th this is all about cash. We all know that. Um, but financial fair play needs to go. Now, if I can make one more point on this, sorry, I'm not going to waffle on all no, day please. about it, but if I can make one more point about it, you know, the, the thing about Manchester City in general, whether you agree with the fact that they've you know, spent billions of, of pounds on players or not, and I have my own reservations about that, even as a blue, incidentally, um, the fact is, is that the City Football Group have invested an awful lot of money in both Manchester City and the game of football and also the local community. They have not as the Glazers have done with Manchester United, loaded the club with debt. Now, that has to be a positive, really, for football. Whatever you think about, you know, the background of City Football Group and the Emiratis, and again, I have my own reservations about that, even as a blue. Um, but I, I think there is, there is a much wider conversation that needs to be uh, had in football about these regulations. Who makes the regulations? and who benefits from them. And at the moment, I think we're only hearing one side of the story. But uh, trust me, I think when it goes to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, I think you'll hear the other side quite strongly. No, um, fascinating insight and um, very interesting. And I think, yeah, even from our side of the fence, being a United fan, probably do agree with lots of that in terms of um, you can sort of, you can accept City's guilt and a lot of clubs' guilt. However, you do have to look at the rules, I think, first in terms of um, should they be broken in the first place. So very fascinating. But just before we move on, we're going to get on to the ownership issue in a little, in just in, in a minute. But um, just back on to the ban in terms of we don't know what's going to happen mainly down due to this coronavirus. But just off the top of your head, what's your guess? If the season does finish and City find themselves in a Champions League pace, which is very likely... Do you think it will just be put on hold and City will be in the Champions League next season? Well, look, my guess, is, in fact, it's probably more than a guess. I think probably the procedurally, uh, at the moment, because City have appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, the case is uh, officially ongoing. Once you launch an appeal, uh, 
uh, I think that punishment has to be put on hold until a verdict is reached. Mm. So I, I would imagine, look, I stand to be corrected on this, but I would imagine that if the season were to be finished today, uh, then City, by dint of finishing second, would be in the Champions League next year. Um, and a decision, you know, whenever that is is arrived upon by the, by Cass, would then come into effect uh, the season after. That That's my gut instinct. But again, there are probably people with legal brains who know much better than me. Uh, Simon, so just want to start going into what we really want to hear you talk about. We want to hear you talk about the red side of Manchester. <laughs> the one that actually has fans, with all due respect. <laughs> yeah, but um, in Manchester. <laughs> oh, I'm, right, I'm not going to get into this debate. We'll be here for two hours. But um, I just want to get, what are your thoughts on United's season so far? Um, obviously, we saw the way they've ended, um, well, before things went, um, the way they've gone with the world. United were actually in a good patch of form, looking like we were pushing for that Champions League spot. What do you make of United? Obviously, the last seven years in a summary, but more so under Oli and the way that the club looks like it's got a little bit more structure and where they're going now. Yeah, I think this season has certainly been an improvement. I, I think probably what uh, happened with United, and we knew there was going to be a dip after Sir Alex Ferguson because he was that club from top to bottom. And, uh, you know, pe maybe people didn't realise uh, just how big a hole he would leave. Um, and obviously United have been through, what is it, three, four managers uh, since he left. But it's not just his leadership as a manager. I think it's his impact upon the whole club. Um, it's almost like that the whole heart was ripped out of United. And it took them a while to you know, rediscover their direction. Um, I actually think they've started to do that now. I think it's still a long haul. I think there's still a, a even though you know, you're, you're beating us in the derby this season, but I think there's still a long way to go. I think you know, the first team squad still needs significant investment, but, mm -hmm. but they're on the right track. And, and what they need to do, in my opinion, and obviously, you know, I'm not emotionally invested, but I think they need to stick with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. You can't just keep changing managers every two or three seasons. You've got to give uh, a guy a chance to, you know, embed himself in, in the club. And, and obviously Solskjaer is a playing legend at United. You know, he knows the club, he loves the club. Um, give him the opportunity to try and build something. If you remember, Alex Ferguson got the job in 1986. Mm. He didn't win a trophy for the first five years. Mm. And he was under pressure for quite a, a significant period of, of that uh, time. But they stuck with him. They said, no, we believe this is the guy for us. And when the, the first trophy came in, you know, then we know the rest is history. So uh, I think they need to stick. They've twisted a few times. They got rid of David Moyes. They got rid of Louis van Gaal. Uh, Jose Mourinho was only ever going to be a short-term appointment. That's just the way he is as a manager. Solskjaer, I think they should stick with. And I think you're seeing the first, you know, green shoots of, of recovery. Um, but having said that, I, I still think they are, you know, quite clearly a long way behind both Liverpool and City in terms of uh, the, the quality of their squad overall. But, you know, that, that's a rebuilding job. And, and they're still in that phase, in my opinion. Well, Simon, I, hate, I don't hate to bring this up, but I'm telling you, that sounds 100% like any other Manchester United fan over the past five years. Everything <laughs> you've said is everything we've said as well. So, um, 
yeah, obviously we're not blinded by our red tinted glasses. But you just mentioned that a lot of sort of on field issue or the sort of the effect that the on field has received. But just um, you t- we touched on before city's ownership, and I just want to obviously we obviously know the Glazers' ownership and the problems that um, United currently face and have faced since two thousand and five. But um, first of all, before we get into the sort of the Saudi sort of rumours in regards to Man United, just cast your mind back to 2008 when the takeover happened at Manchester City, because we're potentially going to go through that next couple of years, we don't know. But just cast your mind back, what was your thoughts going from sort of the old Manchester City to this new sort of beast overnight and just your thoughts on, was it just simply joy and you were happy that was the step you're going to take or was it something that was feeling that was taken a little bit away from Manchester City? Yeah, it's a good question. And I've, I've answered this many times down the years. I think when it first happened in 2008, uh, and funnily enough, I was in transit. I was about to do an Australian national team game in the Netherlands at the time. So I didn't actually learn about it until I landed in, in uh, Amsterdam uh, many hours later. And uh, my phone was obviously then going ballistic. Um, it was almost one of sort of disbelief, really. Uh, you know, what on earth is is this all about? And and then, you know, obviously you were sort of laughing. Wow, you know, our, our owner's worth trillions. I mean, mm. <laughs> it, it was almost like Monopoly money. And I think they signed Robinho on the first day. And I was like, my God, we've, we've signed Robinho. <laughs> you know, it was, I think it was one of incredulity um, mixed with obviously excitement because, you know, clearly we were about to become a major player in the game. Um, and also a little bit of uh, trepidation because, you know, one of the great things about being a City fan down the years, and I'm old enough, obviously, to have experienced this an awful lot during my formative years, particularly growing up in Manchester, was, you know, we, we were identified by not being united, People yeah. liked us, <laughs> you know, with, with the greatest respect to your club. People didn't like United, but they liked City because we weren't United. We, you know, we were the underdogs. We were, um, uh, you know, the shabby team in town. Uh, but but there, was a, there was a real pride in that. Um, I remember, I'll give you a quick story. Back in, I think it was 1998, and we were at our lowest ebb. You'll remember, <clears throat> excuse me, we were in the third division at the time the season that you won the Champions League, we were in the third division. And there was there was a, a game against Mansfield Town that we played in the auto windscreen shield. This, this is how far we, we dipped. <laughs> there, was a, there was a game against Mansfield at Main Road on the same night that United played, I think it was Inter Milan in the, in the Champions League. And you had 77,000 at Old Trafford. And the crowd at Main Road was... 3,900 and I was one of them and the reason I went to that game was there was there was almost a sheer bloody mindedness that we were not going to be killed off you know there there was a real pride in the scarf even though we knew we were terrible uh, as as a team and at our lowest ebb as a club and that we might never come out of it it didn't matter you know that's the tribalism as I'm sure you understand of, of Manchester uh, and as a blue, I, I, I won't say reveled in it, but the, the more difficult it got, the more determined I was that I, I wasn't going to give up. I went to so many places that season. I went to York City away and, you know, got absolutely piss wet through standing on an open terrace. And, you know, a lot of smaller grounds we went to and we lost a fair few games in that league as well. I think at one point we were 
uh, down to 12th in, in League Two, as it then was, in the third division. And, and I remember even thinking that my resolve was starting to weaken a bit. I was like, God, how can I keep going week after week? It's just so bad. Um, and then to go from that to 10 years later, and that's all it was, 10 years later, we were being bought out by some of the richest men on the planet, buying Rubinho for $32 million. I mean, it was just sort of, it was very typically City, you know, hmm. from the sublime to the ridiculous. So we, we had a good laugh about it. Um, obviously, since that day, the trophies have rolled in. Uh, winning trophies is very nice. I, I would never knock it. There's a, there is a large part of me that misses the old city. Um, and that's because I'm getting on a bit and, you know, I live far away from Manchester these days. So I'm a little bit disconnected from it. But I, I do miss that old um, gallows humour of being a blue on the terrace and, uh, you know, singing the songs about uh, we never win at home and we never... we lost last week and we lost today. Uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was fun, even though the football was terrible and we were a poor side. So it's sort of a mix of both, really. Do I like the trophies? Yeah. Who doesn't? Um, do I like the fact we, we watch Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva and Sergio Aguero? Of course I do. Um, do I miss the old days? Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, no, very interesting. And um, yeah, going back to your, sort of your favourite city memories at the start of the podcast, it was a, it was a little bit better to listen to those Division and Two, Division Three days. Um, a little, little bit better to listen to. Um, especially that um, match at the San Siro where Paul Scholes got the equaliser. Thanks for reminding me I needed that. But um, <laughs> just in regards to that, in terms of that emotion, and United fans still to this day, and especially back then, sort of poked a lot of fun at the new ownership sort of thing, said, oh, we'll never do that, etc., disgrace and this and that, and <coughs> poke a lot of fun at it, and sort of some is valid, some is invalid. However, the position we're in now, we very well, football makes hypocrites of every single fan daily, but it will very soon, very likely to be very big hypocrites because if the Glazers are to sell, and you assume one day they probably will sell, the likely investor or the likely new buyer is obviously going to be Saudi Arabia. Or if reports are believed, and God, could you imagine how much United would be sold for, the likelihood Saudis would be the only ones who can sort of buy United, you'd think. So just from a city's point of view, having lived through that back 10 years ago or over 10 years ago now, what would be your thoughts now on the Saudis buying United? Would that, would that be a fear thinking, geez, look what they did to City, or look what happened when City were bought over? United in the position, sort of that starting position they're in. Do you think United, it would be a fear from City thinking, geez, Saudi Arabia will really push United on now? Or do you think there's still, well, the landscape has changed now, the ownership's maybe not as important, etc. Just your thoughts as a City fan. Well, first, let me uh, take a little bit of issue and have a bit of a crack at you for saying that we're about to become hypocrites. You've been hypocrites for 20, 30 years. <laughs> not, just your, not just your club either, because if you remember all the way back, and you, you might be a bit too young for this, but when the Premier League first started in 92-93, the reason it came about was because the old big five in English football they being Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham and Everton, strangely enough, they'd agitated for this because they wanted a greater share of the TV revenue. They wanted more of the money. They wanted to keep... Uh, this all started, by the way, in the mid-80s. If you, I don't know if you know this, but they used to do a split. Every game, two-thirds of the home crowds 
revenue stayed with the home side, but a third went to the away team. That's the way they used to divvy it up. Now, that was the first thing to go because the likes of United and Tottenham and Arsenal and Liverpool said, well, we get the biggest crowds. Why should we give a third of a bigger revenue to our opponents? So the league sort of kowtowed to that. That was the first, uh, the first little chip out of the tree, if you like. Then came the Premier League, 92-93, agitated for the big five because they wanted to keep the money. So that gap started to grow. Then, if you remember, the likes of United in particular started opening up uh, ventures like the Red Cafe in Singapore, and they agitated for a greater um, Champions League competition. They wanted a group stage that uh, replaced the old European Cup because they wanted more revenue from more home games against big European opposition. If you remember, ages ago, we even had a second group stage to give us even more matches in the Champions League. And this was all at the behest of the big clubs of Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, and the old G14, which Manchester United was a very prominent member of. So the point I'm getting to is this all set in train uh, the, the events that led to initially Roman Abramovich coming and buying Chelsea, because the only way that clubs like Chelsea who weren't a traditional, you know, superpower, and of course, Man City and others as well. Uh, you can even include Paris Saint-Germain in that in France. The only way for them to compete was to go and get a sugar daddy and to, and to bridge that financial gap. Because with the Champions League millions, the bigger clubs were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you remember, you know, up until City and Chelsea getting their big investment, the top four in the Premier League was the same every single season. Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, Man United, um, Chelsea, and uh, when, when Abramovich came in. It was the same four teams every single year. They all qualified for the Champions League, got another 60, 70 million and became richer still. And the rest would, were left you know, for crumbs. So the only way for clubs like City and Chelsea and others to compete was to go and get a rich sugar daddy. So now that that's happened, of course, the boot is on the other foot. And a lot of United fans and others around the country are looking at and going, oh, that's disgraceful. You know, you're, you're, just, you're, just, uh, you're winning through money. Well, yeah, that's what you did for 20, 30 years. Uh, it was just constructed in a different way. So to the, the nub of your question, if the Saudis take over, uh, that, that is football's way of reinventing itself. Nothing stays the same forever. I remember I used to work for BBC Radio Lancashire back in the day, in the days when Blackburn Rovers were owned by Jack Walker, if you yeah. remember Jack Walker. Now, Jack Walker came in with his millions. Alan Shearer signed for Blackburn, David Batty, Tim Sherwood, uh, Stuart Ripley, Tim Flowers, big stars of the day. And I remember thinking, geez, when Blackburn won the title in 1995, I thought no team is going to win the title again other than Blackburn for the next 20 years because they were miles ahead financially but nothing ever stays the same in football. That's the beauty of it. So if United have found a way to, to bridge that financial gap by getting Saudi investment, good on them. That's, that, for me, that's absolutely fine. Um, that's, that's football's way of, of reinventing itself. That's what City did. That's what Chelsea did. That's what Paris Saint-Germain did. You, you can argue semantics with the methods. And, and incidentally, I'm not defending... Uh, for example, the human rights record of, of the country that you know, city's ownership belongs to or any of that, that's a completely different issue uh, entirely and, and one I, I, I have strong opinions on. But 
In terms of actual football, if United are going to be bought out by super rich Saudi owners and they invest in the club, so long as they invest in football, hmm. I think that has to be a good thing and not load the club with debt as the Glazers have done. And I think that's what a, a lot of United fans think. Yeah, no, I think well, absolutely fascinating points and 100% agree. And I think that's one of the things where we've sort of tried to take the high ground from for the last 10 years. However, we've seen what the opposite is and we've seen what the Glazers have done to our club and we've seen what your investment mm. has done for City and done for Manchester and done so many sort of positive things. And the Glazers just completely been the opposite. So I think... Look, the, the whole whole debate around Saudi investment, we, we can get into that. It's a whole different podcast for another day. But in regards to just what you're saying, football does change. And I think if you're sort of not going to go with the times, you are going to get left behind. So I think a lot of United fans are now in the position where, well, just let, let's have them. Let's see. Maybe they'll be... You've sort of, seen the light. You've you know, seen I, I think the we, light. I think we have to. I think you've you've yeah. done you've done well. You've shown us the light. But, um, yeah. Look, just then, when you were just going... to sort of uh, follow up on that point, there obviously is a downside to all of this, uh, and and what the you know the City Football Group, uh, as many positive things as the, have they done for our football club, they've obviously by its very nature they they've changed uh, the the feel of the club. It's you know it's much more of a <clears throat> excuse me a corporate club than it used to be, uh, which doesn't necessarily sit easily with me, um, and and you know clearly the. Manchester City now is, is a global uh, company. You know, we have clubs in Australia, we have clubs in uh, America, Uruguay, China. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily sit easy with me. You know, you, it's something akin to Disney in many ways or, or a multinational company like that. But, you know, football as a sport sold its soul many years ago to the commercial dollar. So we can't really be surprised when the commercial dollar takes control of it. Um, and I think that's the whole point. And I think that's probably what United fans are, are starting to realise. If we want to change this, you know, we have to act collectively as football fans and, and maybe return the game to what it once was. But, uh, yeah, sorry, for, for the old G14 clubs to take the moral high ground and say, oh, this is disgraceful, you're just winning because of money. Well, pot kettle, hmm. you did it for 30 years. No, um, yeah, no, really interesting. And as I said, I think a lot of us will agree 100%. Um, I think when you were, just a couple of minutes ago, when you were rattling off those Blackburn players, when Jack Walker took over Blackburn in terms of Alan Shearer, Tim Sherwood, I thought you were going to rattle off um, Robbie Slater. Yes, Robbie was there as well, very very briefly. Uh, won a Premier League title yeah. uh, medal, so good on him. But um, I think Larry wrote down, just to sort of wrap up the podcast, you've got a couple of those quick fire questions we sometimes have for guests. Yeah, mate. It's, I've kind of made a habit of it, but um, I don't want to, I can't help it, but because of what, um, Simon, the, some of the points you've made, um, it, it's worth noting as well, just I want to go back to the, you know, what's happening with COVID-19. Yeah. What you're saying about financial fair play is spot on because clubs are going to struggle now. And if you have owners who can financially keep clubs afloat, I think it is essential that they relax those rulings because Absolutely. without it, I think you'll truly see some clubs go by the waistline. Um, so without, well, I digress, but Simon, so yeah, just quick fire round questions. Who's the greatest Manchester City player of all time? If you could just say one name, who's who's getting a statue outside the Etihad? Colin Bell. A, a Sergio Aguero or Wayne Rooney? 
<laughs> Rooney. Is that even is that even a question? Come on. Yeah, it's Wayne Rooney all day long. Aguero. Aguero, of course. <laughs> um although I do admire Wayne Rooney. I thought he was a great player and I thought he you know what, I thought he copped an awful lot of stick that was unfair and and smacked of, of jealousy and envy because he earned a lot of money. But you, you look at his career, he won the Champions League, he played for England over a hundred times. He won goodness knows how many Premier League title winners' medals, hundreds of goals. Jeez, you know, we'd have all killed for that career. So I, I'm a big admirer of Wayne Rooney, even though he won a jersey. Favourite moment calling a match? Favourite moment calling a match? Uh, probably the Australia-Japan game in 2006, the World Cup yep. in Kaiserslautern. Um, I was privileged enough to be the caller on SBS when Australia scored their first ever goal at a World Cup finals, thanks to, to Tim Cale, who then went, went on to score another one, along with John Aloisi. In the... um, so that, that's a very special moment to be associated with, along with the Aloisi penalty that, that got the Socceroos there, obviously, in November 2005. But, yeah, I, th- I think that moment in Kaiserslautern in 2006, that, that's, that's a very nice thing to be associated with. Yeah, very memorable match as well. Um, Kevin Zabronya or Paul Pogba? <laughs> oh, come on, mate. What do, what it's an easy one. What say here? Come on, De Bruyne, obviously. Hey, hey I, I actually agree with you, to be honest. So, not controversial at all. Uh, and the last one. Who leaves Manchester first? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or Pep Guardiola? Oh, that's a good question. To be honest, um, I would probably say Pep Guardiola. Uh, I, I think, you know, Pep tends to have a bit of a shelf life at his clubs. Um, he's he's such an intense uh, football manager. Uh, I think he tends to suffer from burnout a little bit. I think he'll want to win the Champions League before he goes. And, you know, maybe this year was our best chance of doing that. We haven't even talked about what happens with the Champions League and the Europa League. But uh you know, if that doesn't transpire this year, I wouldn't be surprised if he moved on either at the end of this season or maybe at the end of next. Uh, I, you know, he's obviously he's just lost his mum, as you pointed out. He's got family back in Spain. Maybe he feels at some point that he needs, you know, to return to his homeland. I honestly don't know. I don't know the man. I wish I did. Um, I'll, I'll let you into a little exclusive story here, and I'll, this this will be forever my my biggest regret. Uh, 18 months ago during the A-League off-season, and I always go back to the UK during the A-League off-season, I have a holiday back with family, friends, etc. And I got a, a phone call from Scott Munn, who was the CEO of Melbourne City uh, at the time, saying, are you around? On-? You know, I'm sorry, I'm I'm over in the UK at the moment on holiday. I said, oh, that's it. Pep's over here at the moment. Uh, and we're playing a round of golf and we wondered if you wanted to make up a four ball. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, well, I can't because I'm in the UK. So I missed out on having three hours uh, personal time with, with Pep Guardiola. But there you go. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I think it'll probably be Pep. Yeah, no, I think um, pretty much spot on. Well, we obviously as United fans do hope Pep eventually leaves and obviously <laughs> we, we do hope Solskjaer stays for a long time. But um, time will tell. And I think the oh, best part of an hour I think this chat was um, fascinating, especially, look, as obviously a Man United podcast, but obviously trying to be nice and hearing a different 
sort of point of view, different opinion, I think is very good. I'm sure all our listeners will find it um, very interesting. Um, I'm just thinking oh, a bit of a shout out to Tanya who helped us um, obviously get in touch with you to come on the podcast. Yeah, good old Tanya. <laughs> really enjoyed this. Um, I think we'll have to when sort of social distancing sort of comes to an end and we return to normality. Um, I met Tanya through the obviously part of the Man United Supporters Club. She's part of the Man City Supporters Club. And we had a game a couple of, oh, actually it was probably about a year ago, a charity game between the two clubs. So I'm thinking um, we'll definitely have to do that next time or we're able to get back on the pitch. Um, maybe get Bozzer in goals for us and you on the Man City team. I will have to play. It, it, it's obviously my lifelong dream to play in the Sky Blue jersey and represent my club. So I will definitely play in that game. I won't be able to move because I'm an old man these days and I've got bad knees. But, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, not, not yeah, many of us move too, too great. Um, <laughs> but um, it always is good fun um, playing in those charity games. Um, so I think at the end of the day, just we really and truly appreciate your time coming on. Um, it's great to have names such as yourself come on and give a little bit of time to a small podcast like this. Um, even being a City fan, we do respect you. And I think Australian football as well owes a big thank you to you, I think, since you've come into the sort of commentary game and the, especially through Fox Sports. I think you've done a very, very good job with um, sort of everything. It was obviously Australian football, the international football, when Fox Sports had the Premier League, etc. Um, I've really enjoyed thank your you. contribution to the game here. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, obviously, di- slightly different experience for me, but, uh, you know, throughout all this, we're, we're all football fans first and foremost. So uh, it's, it's been a, a really enjoyable conversation. So stay well and, uh, and healthy, everybody. No, will do. And we will be back, hopefully discussing something to do with football <coughs> and sort of news soon. But um, hopefully everyone enjoyed this podcast and we will chat to you again on Monday. So cheers. See ya.